Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How are you all? So we have been uh, been doing a red letter study, but we've been off for three weeks. And we're going to be off again today because uh, it's just about Thanksgiving. Can't believe it, but it's almost Thanksgiving. And uh, wanted to talk about Thanksgiving-related stuff, at least uh, kind of peripherally. Um, as I mentioned, you know, we have uh, this Giving Tuesday campaign going on, and we themed it about this idea of beginner's mind, about the fact that so much of what we do in the effect is preparing people to take the next steps in their journey by unlearning before you learn. And it's such an important concept. We talked about how many times Jesus uses imagery about stripping everything away, right? Selling everything that you have and giving it away before you can follow him and divesting yourself even of your dependence on your own family. Hate your father and mother and sister and brother and your children and even your own life. Pick up your cross and follow me. All that imagery is about this stripping away, getting back to the baseline. He uses a child constantly as an emblem of kingdom. And there's a reason for that. We need to get back to being able to see with those children's eyes, those eyes that we looked at. Can you remember when you were that young? I mean, it's getting to be real difficult. But if you can remember how you used to do things for hours, we could just lay in the grass and look at clouds, you know, and just let the time go by. And there was that almost time dilation where everything seemed to go away. And you were seeing these things as if they were brand new because they were. What Jesus is trying to do is to get us to be able to see them again that way because it is so important. Ancient wisdom, Jesus' wisdom, cannot teach us unless we're able to see that what is coming to us is something radically different than we think we already know. Because if we think in any way that it is familiar, that it is already what we know, we're going to miss entirely what it is Jesus is trying to bring to us because it is so completely different. We need to see things with what Zen Buddhism calls shoshin. Ever heard that word before? Shoshin. And it means beginner's minds. It means that, that openness it means that wide-eyed ability to wonder and see things that way. There's a great story that is hand, handed down in uh, Zen Buddhism about a great Zen master. Everybody wanted to study under this master, and they'd come from far and wide to, to talk with him and to learn from him, and he rarely turned anyone down. But this important man, a government official, came to him and said, I want you to teach me about Buddhism. I want you to open my eyes and open my mind to enlightenment. And it's kind of more of a command than it was a request. This is a man who was used to getting what he wanted, right? And the, uh, the master looked at him and kind of knew where he was coming from. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, let's discuss it over tea. And so they sit down, and when the tea is prepared, he starts pouring his guest uh, the tea in the cup. And he keeps pouring and pouring. And the cup fills up, and he keeps pouring. And it starts to overflow, and he keeps pouring. The puddle starts to run across the table. He keeps pouring. It overflows the table, and it starts to fall on the man's robes. And he jumps up and says, what are you doing? You know, can't you see the cup is full? And the master says, stops pouring and smiles again. And he says, you are a full cup. You know, nothing more can be added. Come back to me when your cup is empty. Come back to me with an empty mind. This is it. We cannot fill a filled vessel. The cup is already full. For all of us, our cups are full. We're full of what we think we know, right? 
people might, some people might say we're full of a lot of other things too, right? But we're full. We have all of this stuff filled up in us. As adults, we think we know so many things. And so we are all filled cups. Nothing more can be added. More importantly, we are filled with a filter that won't allow anything through but what we think we already know. So even when something comes to us from such a different perspective, we're going to imagine that it is what we already know because it's only going to come through the filter shaped in that particular way of thinking. So Jesus is teaching exactly the same way as the sin master. He uses the child as kingdom to try to get that across. He's constantly challenging accepted beliefs all over the place. Read it over again and see how he is challenging the beliefs, the cultures, the traditions that are limiting the people. Not the ones that are opening them up, <coughs> but the ones that are limiting them. And he's trying, again, to introduce paradox into their thinking, which will break down the way that they are thinking that they are thinking. You know, what is it about this, you know, hate your father and mother? It's introducing a paradox. He doesn't mean that literally the way we think of it. <coughs> Don't let me down, boys. This is what contemplation, of course, is all about. <coughs> it's about stepping aside from the egoic mind, which is the repository for all this that we think we know, right? The egoic mind is a repository for everything that hurts everything that has this, this uh, valence to it of trauma. To be able to step aside from that is what contemplation is all about. It's what this teaching is all about. Marion just read from the, the book that we're going through on our book study on Wednesday nights, just this. And Richard Rohr asked the question early on in the book. He says, why does this not come naturally to us? This way of seeing that we're talking about. Thanks, Scotty. This way of seeing, this openness, this childlike way of having this beginner's mind, why doesn't it come naturally to us? The truth of the matter is we are born with beginner's mind. We're born that way. We have that kind of... Everybody's bringing me water now. <laughs> oh, I have enough water for days. We're born with this beginner's mind. We're born with this ability to see this way and to, and to accept things as they come. But then we unlearn it, Right? As adults, we unlearn it all, and we learn all these things, and of course, all of the pains and all of the traumas and everything that hits us, that is what builds a new way of thinking. Now, Rohr says, even as adults, this way of thinking does come to us momentarily. It's just not our default anymore. It's not where we live anymore. But it comes unbidden in intense moments of great love and great suffering. And if you think about it, those are the moments that break us through. When you fall in love, whether it's romantically with another person or whether it's your child or whether it's your puppy. That breaks you through into a different way of seeing. Try to remember when you were head over heels in love with even a place, right? You love Italy. You go to Italy. You're seeing it way different than the locals do. It's got a different sheen to it. It's got a different color to it because you're able to break through and see it in a different way. And great suffering does the same thing pulls away the illusions, pulls away the curtains. But that's only momentary. And it's dependent on circumstances. What we're trying to do in contemplation is to be able to develop a habitual way of being able to see everything around us, all of our moments in this particular way. Now, how do we learn to do that? Um, 
from Richard Rohr again. You're going to hear a little bit more from his book. He says, to begin to see with new eyes, we must observe and usually be humiliated by the habitual way we encounter each and every moment. Interesting word, right? Humiliated. He says, it's humiliating because we will see that we are well-practiced in just a few reasonable, a few predictable responses. Few of our responses are original, fresh, or naturally respectful of what is right in front of us. The most common human responses to a new moment are mistrust, cynicism, fear, knee-jerk reactions, a spirit of dismissal, and overriding judgmentalism. Sound a little bit familiar? He says it is so discouraging when we have the courage to finally see that these are the common ways that the ego tries to be in control of the data instead of allowing the moment to get some control over us and teach us something new. All right, but humiliated. Is that the word that you would use? Discouraged by the way that we think, by the way that we react? I want to say, actually, you know, the way that our egoic mind works is an evolutionary adaptation. Think about it. You know, we're hominids in in the forest with all these creatures that got teeth and fangs, and we're naturally kind of unprotected in that way. How is it that we're going to survive? How is it that we're going to get to eventually to the top of the food chain? We have minds that can think the way our minds do. They can categorize. They can put things in pigeonhole for quick retrieval. We can compare and contrast. We can learn what a foe is and what a friend is, and then we catalog that. So when fight or flight kicks in, we don't have to think about it at all. Neocortex, not even involved. goes right through the lizard brain, right? Because we already pre-know this has these traits, these have those, and we just categorize that way. I mean, how long would we have lasted if every time we saw the wolf, we were seeing it as if for the first time? Oh, how beautiful that is. What a pretty dog. I'm not going to last too long in the forest. We need to know right away. And if we're not sure if something is friend or foe, what's the safest thing to do? Treat it as a foe. Protect yourself initially until it can prove otherwise. This is a necessary adaptation for our survival. The judgmentalism is the judgment that we can apply to different things and categorize them, all of that. But the trouble is that we have become so reliant on this way of thinking. It has become so habitual, this judging way of thinking, which is why Jesus told us not to, that we don't see anything as it is anymore. We only see it as it has been categorized in our minds, the way that we have set up the filter. And so we're not seeing it until the point that we're really not, really not present at all. We're present inside to the way the mind thinks, but are we really present to everything around us? Did you know that Microsoft Corporation did a study and they used EEGs? electroencephalograms or whatever that is, right? EEGs with a study group of several hundred people to find out what their attention spans were. Now, back in year 2000, it was about 12 seconds, a person's attention span. They could focus on one thing for about 12 seconds. Then, that was right before and right as the mobile revolution was kicking in, right? All of our handheld devices. Do you know what the attention span is today? It's dropped to eight seconds. Now, that might not sound like a whole bunch to you until you realize 
that a goldfish has the attention span of nine seconds. We have less attention span than a goldfish at this point on average. This is the egoic mind run amok. This is the egoic mind just operating and feeding on itself so that we're not really present anymore to anyone around us, to anything around us. We don't see things as they are. We only see them as we imagine them to be. Obviously, we need both. We need a balance. We need to be able to categorize things. If we were seeing everything as first time, you know, like every time you walk home and your dog greets you and it's as if you're walking home for the first time, if you were doing that, you wouldn't last very long. We got a puppy right back there, so I'm looking at the puppy. But you kind of get my drift here. We have to be able to make things familiar and be able to use them, but we need the balance as well, which means we're going to have to practice beginner's mind. We don't have to practice the rest. We got that down cold. But we're going to have to practice beginner's mind, and it's going to feel like we're pulling the pendulum all the way to that side. But what we're trying to do is get it balanced in the middle. We need to learn how, again, to see things as if for the first time. As Richard Rohr says, we have to let things stun us again. We have to allow them to awe us again. And when we can start to do that, when we can move into the moment and let it just take us away, pretty much on command, and do it in a repeatable way, then we can start putting the balance together. So here, as we are running up to Thanksgiving, why is this important? Why am I talking to you about this? I want to read a little bit of a piece from Dennis Prager. If you know who he is, he's a, he's a social commentator and a great thinker and uh, happens to be a Jew as well. Um, it comes from that perspective. But listen to what he's saying here. He says, how many times have you heard someone say that they want to make a better world? It's a noble statement, but very hard to achieve, right? Well, actually, it's quite easy. All we have to do is increase just one human trait. This trait is so powerful that it alone can make people happier without working on their happiness and make them better. And by better, I mean more generous, more honest, more kind, more everything good without a single lesson in morality. So then, what is this one almost magical thing? Drum roll, please. <laughs> it's gratitude. You can't be a happy person if you aren't grateful. And you can't be a good person if you aren't grateful. Almost everything good flows from gratitude. And almost everything bad flows from ingratitude. And if good and bad are kind of, you know, dualistic, think decent and indecent. That, to me, helps better. Everything decent flows from gratitude. Everything indecent flows from ingratitude. He says, let's begin with ingratitude. Here's a rule of life. Ingratitude guarantees unhappiness. Ingratitude guarantees unhappiness. It is as simple as that. There isn't an ungrateful person on earth. There, I'm sorry. There, there's lots of ungrateful people on earth. There isn't an ungrateful happy person on earth. And there isn't an ungrateful good person on earth. Decent person on earth. And there are two reasons. Reason one is victimhood. Ingratitude always leads to or comes from victimhood. Ungrateful people, by definition, think of themselves as victims. And perceiving oneself as a victim or perceiving oneself as a member of a victim group may be the single biggest reasons people hurt other people, from hurtful comments to mass murder. 
People who think of themselves as victims tend to believe that because they've been hurt by others, they can hurt others. And the second reason ungrateful people aren't good people is that ingratitude is always accompanied by anger. The ungrateful are angry, and angry people lash out at others. If ungratitude makes people unhappy and mean, then gratitude must make people happy and kind. And so it does. Think of the times you have felt most grateful. Were they not always accompanied by a feeling of happiness? Weren't they also accompanied by a desire to be kinder to other people? The answer, of course, is yes. Grateful people aren't angry, and they also don't see themselves as victims. And here are two more rules of life. Rule number one, the less you feel entitled to, the more gratitude you will feel for whatever you get. The less you feel entitled to, the more gratitude you will feel for whatever you get, and the happier you will be. Rule number two, the more you feel entitled to, the less happy you will be. You know, I think Prager is nailing it here. This, this gratitude, you know, it, it seems so simple. And, you know, you've heard it a thousand times. You know, be thankful, be thankful. Count your blessings, you know. Whenever anyone tells me to count my blessings, but I start counting are ways to hurt them. It's kind of like saying snap out of it, you know. Come on. It doesn't work that way. Gratitude is a lot more than mere thankfulness. It begins there, but it journeys on until it becomes an actual life attitude, a way of living life, a default position, a way of seeing life, more than just counting blessings and trying to gin up some sort of gratitude. So if that's the case, how do we begin? Well, we begin by building awareness. That's going to be the first and foremost a sense of mindfulness or presence that allows us to really see the moment that we're in. We're not going to be able to be grateful for anything if we don't see it. And anything to be grateful for in the moment, if we're just processing what's in our head, which is usually negative content, let's be honest, when your head is going, isn't it usually negative content that you're processing? How in the world are you going to be grateful? How in the world are you going to see anything? If we can start seeing what is really right in front of us, what is really here, then we can start practicing breaking through those ego categories, all the categories that ego places things into, and begin to see with a child's eyes. And I wanted to read what we read on Friday night again. And if you were here, you'll hear them again. And just listen again. But if you're hearing it for the first time, do it with beginner's mind, right? First of all, remember, have you ever heard the name Tecumseh? the great Shawnee chief of the 18th and 19th century, he writes this, When you arise in the morning, give thanks for the light, for your life, for your strength. Give thanks for your food and for the joy of living. If you see no reason for giving thanks, the fault lies only in yourself. There is always something to be grateful for. But if we are not paying attention to the tiniest details in our moments, we'll never see them. This is what I liked about these. They're called tiny stories of gratitude. And the Times asked people to send in stories of what they were grateful for, stories that, that illustrated their gratitude in 100 words or less. So they're just half paragraphs, basically. But listen to a few of them and see where these people go in terms of what they feel grateful for in their lives. Carrie Friedman, 45, of Los Angeles, writes, Halfway through a five years long goodbye, 
with my father. I forgot what his laugh sounded like. After his death a few months ago, my siblings and I recovered three treasures, gifts really, a recipe card for spaghetti pie, an experimental dinner he made for us once, and it was as disgusting as it sounds, a photo of him dressed as a turkey, something he did most Thanksgivings just to embarrass us, and mock infomercials he'd recorded for a decade before he got sick. And in the video bloopers, I heard his laugh again, a breathy pa, not unlike my own. Jenna Janitas, 34 of Grand Rapids, Michigan, writes about her next door neighbor. She says, your hello waves, your bouncy gait as you mow our lawn since it's right next to yours, your spicy chicken curry when our third was born, your stop when my son's green ball rolled into the street and I wasn't there, your giant trampoline filled with little feet from every house, your send the kids over so I could sip coffee in silence, the passing down of the dinosaur costume you made, a pink dress, puzzles, how you thought of me, looked out for me and my family in this disconnected world. Tiny details, things that we just roll past day by day if we're not paying attention. Emily Franklin, 50, of Boston. I work from home, taking twice weekly breaks to walk to the market. I talk to Morella, the cashier, as she rings up my purchases. I ask about her grandson. She asks about my kids, who she has seen grow from stroller to college. This year, we check in about her sister and my mother, who both have Alzheimer's. The brutal disease is robbing us both. And as part-time caregivers, the sad weight of it all can be a lot. But twice a week, someone I've never seen outside the market checks in with me, and I'm grateful. That one resonates with me because Marianne works as a cashier, and I see both sides of that story. But I know that Marianne gives that kind of gift to everyone who comes through her line. I love that. Annalisa McMorrow, 53, of Point Reyes Station, California. A tiny record store opened up in our tiny northern California town. I'm a vinyl junkie and immediately became a regular. Now one of the owners knows my taste so well, he'll text me randomly. Mule variations and swordfish trombones. Interested? And I'm the round-the-clock caregiver for my disabled husband. The owners hold the LPs for me until I can make it in. Their story is a bright spot of promise and nostalgia in a life that can be very sad. Barack Goodman, 59, of Brooklyn, New York. We gather at the field around 7.30 a.m., enough time to apply wraps, balms, and braces, and roll out tired limbs. Our bellies stuffed into our favorite English football jerseys overhang the elastic of our shorts. The, ba- the game begins and the thump thump of foot on ball is punctuated by the usual insults. The goal is over there, Mike. For an hour, all is forgotten. Last night's shouting match with my wife, the dwindling bank balance, the polite rejection at work. We are together, playing a game that we love. I'm grateful for old men in too tight soccer shorts. <laughs> John Parker, 69, of Pauley Island, South Carolina. It was a tough week, and I was exhausted as I drove home from the airport. Suddenly, the engine just cut off. I drifted to a stop on the shoulder of a busy highway. I called a tow truck, and my car ended up at a nearby repair shop. This is going to be expensive. I called a cab and got home. The next morning, the repair shop called and said the bill was $10. What? Turns out I had run out of gas. (laughs) 
not broken down. He could have charged me anything, but I found an honest repairman. Something to be grateful for. And finally, Natalie Jabbar, 36, of Bay Area, California. The day after you died in May, a mourning dove began visiting my backyard for the first time. He often appeared after I sat at the wooden table, perching on a nearby branch as his small feathered body vibrated into a series of coups. I jokingly named him TJ, an inverse of your name. And what Whenever and whether he came by coincidence, as you would have argued, or a spiritual visitation, as my mystical mother suggested, he stayed for several weeks. Talking to him filled me with gratitude and reminded me that you live on within me and everyone who loves you. These people in these moments were opened up to the details of their lives. Did they live that way all the time? I have no way of knowing. But at least these moments opened them up so they could see what was right there in front of them, what was right now. And when you do that, gratitude is the natural reaction to recognizing that these gifts have been given to us. And when they are gifts that we could never give ourselves, as all of these are, think about them. Think about in your life the kindness of strangers, things that people did that they didn't have to do, and how it changed you for that moment at least, a gift you couldn't give yourself. All of this is the opposite of entitlement. And so the question is, why is this all so hard? Why is it hard for us to do this? If it's so natural that gratitude flows just from seeing in this way, well, here we are. We're fighting human nature again, right? We're fighting that adaptation of the egoic mind and the way that it works. And all of that is fear-based. So we're fighting fear. Fear keeps us from being this open. Fear keeps us from just really looking at what is here rather than instantly defending, getting into that place where we think we can't be hurt. Fear creates blockages that also keep us from being open and vulnerable enough to see the moment as it really is. And Jesus teaches us on this. Let's take a look. You can follow along in your uh, inserts, and Alex will be putting things up on the board, but right at the beginning there, just a couple of quotes on beginner's mind. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert mind, there are few. And then from Epictetus, an ancient Stoic Greek philosopher, it is impossible for anyone to begin to learn that which he thinks he already knows. And so here is Jesus teaching along the same lines, not explicitly but implicitly as he always does. Jesus is always coming alongside, telling stories, making metaphoric connections as he does in his poetic way. But in Matthew eleven two five, this is when John the Baptist has been imprisoned, and he's not getting out of prison. He never does. He's executed. But while he's there, he's hearing these stories of Jesus going through the countryside and doing everything that he does. And he sent word by his disciples and said to Jesus, are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Isn't that an amazing statement from John the Baptist? The one who was the precursor, the one who said, here comes one whose shoes I am not even worthy to untie. 
and sending all of his disciples off to follow Jesus. But when he says the expected ones, John was probably an Essene, and the Essenes had this idea of the expected one coming. That's the exact title that they gave their Messiah figure, who would come and make everything right, bring the nation back to purity. And as Jesus' ministry went on, the reports that he's hearing while he's rotting away in prison are not comporting with what he expected Jesus to be doing at this time. Because the expected one was going to be a political ruler, a military ruler, who was going to throw out the Romans and bring sovereignty back to Israel. It wasn't happening. So are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus answers and says to them, his disciples, go and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are, clean, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to him, to them. What is Jesus doing? He's saying, pay attention. Look around and see what's really happening here. Look beyond the filter that you have of what you think the expected one is going to bring and see what is going on. He is quoting from the Old Testament prophets here. John would have known those scriptures backwards and forwards, and it hopefully broke him through to realize what Jesus is talking about. The scriptures are being fulfilled in a way that he didn't expect, but his expectation is what was keeping him from being able to see the moment as it was. Look around. See what's happening. Everything is already here. When you see what is really going on in front of you, the question you're asking will answer itself. Yes. It's only our agendas. It's only our expectations. Overlaid on each moment we experience that are blocking the sense of any sort of gratitude, holding it at bay. Expectation is one of those blockages. It's born out of fear but it'll block us from being able to see the moment as it is and let the gratitude flow. The next is insecurity. Look at John 14, verse 8. This is where, in the Last Supper, Jesus has told all of his followers that he's going to be leaving them, and they are freaking out. You want to talk about insecurity? This is it. He's the guy they've been following for at least three years, and now he's going to just cut and run when things are really hot in Jerusalem, politically speaking, at the moment. And, of course, Thomas says, show us the way, at least. If you're going to go, you've got to show us the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. And then Philip pops up. Then show us the Father. <laughs> you can almost see him smacking his forehead. Philip, how long have you been with me? And you still don't get it? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You don't need to see the unseen God. Everything I do is because the Father is doing it through me. I am the way. I am the Father. You have everything that you need. And when you finally realize who you're walking with when you are following Jesus, how can you lose? How can you be lost? How can you be ungrateful? How can you be insecure? How can you be fearful? But until you are present enough, open enough to see what is really going on, all of that insecurity remains. How about envy? Luke 15, of course, this is the story, the great story of the prodigal son. When the prodigal returns, it's the elder brother who will not go into the party. He is just going to hang out there because he's envious. He's the one who stayed behind. He was the one who was faithful to his father. 
And that ingrate goes out and spends all the money that's supposed to stay with the household, comes back and gets a party thrown. Of course, we would all feel that way to a certain extent. But the father says to him, son, remember, everything I have is yours. But your brother was dead and has come back to life, and we have to celebrate that. We don't know if he ever went in. The story ends there. But what part of everything don't you understand? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. But Jesus is saying that everything that's of any value, any real value in this life, is already ours, and it always has been. God withholds nothing. It's all here. It's all now. It's been this way since the beginning. God is all poured out all the time. All his decisions are already made in our favor. The only thing left is what we're going to do. And once you open your eyes to that truth with your beginner's mind, then by definition, envy is nonsensical. It doesn't even make sense. There's nothing left to envy because everything is already ours. We already have it all. And of course, we're talking spiritually here. But it's freely given. And when we realize that, the gratitude flows. How about entitlement? Luke 7. This is the story of Jesus when he's invited by Simon the Pharisee to have a meal with him. But Simon doesn't do the usual Eastern hospitality courtesies. He doesn't wash his feet. He doesn't give him a kiss. He doesn't anoint him. He doesn't do any of those things because he's pretty sure Jesus is outside of the law and he wants to observe him. But as they are reclining at table, a woman who is characterized as the greatest sinner of the village comes in, finds Jesus as he's reclining, sits behind his feet, and just douses them with expensive perfume and she's weeping and sobbing and her tears are falling at his feet and she's drying them with their hair and Simon looks disgustedly across the table and, said, and thinks to himself if this man really were a prophet he would know who's touching him because you wouldn't be allowed first of all to even have a man touch a woman or a woman touch a man in public but secondly not someone who was a sinner not someone who was judged to be outside the law and, of course, Jesus tells them the story about the debtors and who is forgiven and who's going to love more. But the, true, the whole point of the story is, is that the woman is absolutely grateful for a gift she could never give herself. The fact that Jesus will let her touch him, be close to him, connect with her. And Simon, who is absolutely entitled because he believes he's earned everything that he's gotten. He's earned God's approval. And therefore, he has and others do not. Entitlement is the killer. Entitlement is what really will kill off any kind of gratitude. And this is what even Prager was talking about. To start to realize through our beginner's mind that everything that we have is a gift. Everything is a forgiven debt. Everything we have is like a jackpot. It's as if we won the lottery. Even though we know that we went to work every day, even though we worked hard, but to realize that nothing of value is earned in the way we think of it is to become vulnerable again, to become fearlessly dependent again. Even as we work and do our jobs and do what we do, to realize the basic things of life are given to us. This next breath that everything we earn is dependent upon is given to us freely. You don't earn it. 
Now we can be fearlessly grateful. You know, I was thinking, Jesus tells us the highest form of love. Remember that one? The highest form of love is the love of the enemy. The one that we think doesn't deserve it, right? The one that we don't get, the one that we don't have any feelings for. What do you think is the highest form of gratitude? Because I think it follows along the same lines. I think the highest form of gratitude is for that which we think we have earned, quote unquote. But we can still feel grateful for it. We can still see it as a free gift, even if we've worked hard. To be able to feel grateful in that paradox is the same as being able to be loving in the paradox of the enemy. This is the way Jesus teaches us, moving us through these things, breaking down the way we think, breaking down that filter so that we can just see. And the last one, of course, is victimization. And this is John 5. And this is the story of the man who's the infirm man who was at the pool of Bethesda. And he'd been there for 38 years or some ungodly amount of time. And when Jesus asked him, do you wish to get well, he can't even just say yes. He goes into this long story about, hey, you know, when the waters are stirred up, because the, the tradition was that the angels would come periodically and stir up the waters, and the first one in the pool would get healed. He said, when the waters are stirred up, there's no one there to put me in. He has a victim mentality. He can't see past all of that. He can't see the possibility of anything new. He can't see who Jesus is and what he's offering to him. He can't feel gratitude because a victim, by definition, has no choice. Something has been perpetrated on a victim and they had no choice in the matter. That's the way the man at the pool sees himself. But Jesus is telling us emphatically, we are not victims. What does he tell the man? He says, pick up your pallet and walk. Make a choice. Go for it. Pick up your pallet and walk. Don't pretend that you're paralyzed. Just walk. Walk and find a reason to be grateful. Start somewhere, anywhere. And of course, we're not talking literally here. We're talking spiritually. We're talking interiorly. But the same thing is there needs to be a choice that we make that takes us in this new direction. And Jesus is always pointing in the same direction. He's always trying to get us to see that if we're going to overcome expectation and the way it deadens our senses to what's around us, we're only going to do that with awareness, with presence, with being able to see what is right here and right now. If we're going to overcome the insecurity that we all feel, we're going to do it with intimacy. We're going to do it with connection where we prove to ourselves that we are still connectable, that we are still worthy of connection. Intimacy takes us through the insecurity. We're going to overcome envy. We're going to do it with a realization that there is a spiritual abundance. God is not a zero-sum game. He doesn't operate that way. God is everything, all the time, always on, always full blast. There's nothing you can do to change that. What does envy have to do with anything in that kind of abundance? To move past entitlement. We do that with dependence, with the realization of our dependence, with the realization of our own vulnerability. Victimization, we overcome that with choice, with action. And always choice and action in the direction of connection to the community and everyone around us. 
And all of those things together, all of those ways forward that Jesus is teaching us and giving us, all create the same, same sensation in us. When we purpose to live in awareness, intimacy, a sense of abundance, but also dependence and vulnerability, when we're choosing action, motion, connection, what does that feel like? What happens when you make those choices? Well, it feels like gratitude. Which feels like happiness? Fulfillment, meaning, purpose. If you think about it, gratitude is an umbrella term that covers and includes all the positive emotions that are possible for us as human beings. And it excludes all the negative ones at the same time. Think about it. You cannot be grateful and depressed at the same time. You can't do it. You can't be depressed and listen to James Taylor at the same time either, I found out. And he got me through a lot of bad times. But you can't be grateful and be depressed at the same time. You can't be grateful and be angry or stressed or anxious or envious or entitled or victimized at the same time. It is not possible to be that. When you are grateful, you are completely immersed in the moment. You are connected to the moment. You are feeling the gifts that are being given to you that you could never give yourself. It blows out everything, and what is left feels like what we call gratitude. But it just is that presence, that connection, that kingdom, if you will. It's literally impossible to have those negatives together with gratitude because gratitude is what kingdom feels like. It is the default position of being connected to being one the way Jesus and the Father were one. If you're not feeling grateful, then you're not in kingdom. Simple as that. You could probably paraphrase Jesus and say, seek first gratitude and all else will be added. But there's a catch. And the catch is that you cannot create gratitude. You don't seek it directly as an end. You can't count your blessings into it, which is something that we mistakenly try to do. Gratitude is simply what happens when you begin to see with beginner's mind, as a child sees. As you begin to let go of all the complexity that we entertain as adults, all the calculations, all the plans, all the judgments, everything that we do to get through our day and feel somewhat in control, and we just begin to see and accept the moment as it is, let the moment be enough, nothing needs to be added, nothing needs to be taken away, then gratitude happens like night follows day. We come to gratitude indirectly when we move into the moment, when we become one with the moment. That's how we were born. We were born grateful. We were born as children who couldn't even process the way what we do now as adults. We were born grateful, but we grew out of it. But we can fall back in love, and we can fall back into gratitude as we do. Now, of course, we're not going to feel grateful all the time not possible. Nobody does that. Not even Jesus. What did Jesus say from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. At that moment, 
He felt abandoned. At that moment, he felt victimized. At that moment, he felt whatever he felt. But in the next moment, he can come back and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We're not always going to feel grateful. But if we come right back to the awareness and the intimacy and the abundance and dependence and vulnerability, if we start making choices again, move into action toward connection, gratitude will happen again. It is what happens. It's almost not a thing. It's just what it feels like to be in connection, to be that presence. It's what the second half of life is all about that we're constantly talking about. Practicing presence, which is at the core of gratitude, will bring us into a grateful people. And it's progress. It's not perfection. 51%, that's all we got to get to, 51% of the time, changes our mailing address, right? Changes our character, changes our default position. Get there, and your life changes. And then, of course, it takes off exponentially from there. But it's progress, not perfection. One thing that we can do will encompass all things, change everything. Just practice presence through a beginner's mind. If we can do that, then we can start to see what we've been missing, and gratitude will follow. Let's take that to our Thanksgiving Day dinner tables. Jesus would approve. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Life is difficult, you know that. It will always be difficult. It will be a never-ending series of problems, a never-ending series of losses. And at kind of the time of life that we're at in the second half of life, it seems like those are coming thick and heavy from all directions. But if we find no reason to be grateful, the fault lies only in ourselves. We know that, Lord. So help us to see through. Help us to see between the raindrops of the difficulties to what's really there. And to know that every moment brings a gift that we could never give ourselves. Help us to see that so that the gratitude can flow in us and through us again. That feeling of just knowing that everything will be all right and that you are still there and caring for us and loving us. That's what we're after, Lord. This Thanksgiving, heighten our awareness to being able to do just that to realize when our thoughts have wandered off and are doing the usual cycling that we can come back. We can make the choice to come back and pick up our palate and walk into the moment that will take us somewhere brand new. Thank you, Father, for everything that you do for us constantly. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.